Good morning. I want to begin this morning's service by just saying as loudly and as plainly as I can, First Baptist Church is not on sabbatical. We are here and we are here to worship, right? Our mission has not changed. And everything that we do to serve infants and children and youth and adults, everything that we did two weeks ago, we're still doing. The only change that we have made is we have temporarily suspended our 8.30 Sunday morning service. Everything else, if you're wondering, if someone asks you if we're still doing something, the answer is yes. We're still doing it. We're doing it with all of our heart, soul, and all of our might. Uh, why am I telling you all this? Just, just in case there's one or two who have been vacationing in the Bahamas and don't know what's going on. Our pastor for the last six years or better, David Henneke, has been reassigned by God to the great state of Texas where we got him, apparently, on loan. Uh, now, I, I, I do want to tell you where we are, uh, just to, to summarize very, very shortly. Uh, we, we have an elder board in this church. I am one of four elders, and we are working diligently to take the next step. What is that next step? The next step will be to secure the services of an interim pastor who will uh, not be here every day of the week, but will, but will be here certain days of the week and take the preaching responsibilities. Um, as one of the elders, I will be behind the pulpit today and the four Sundays of May, and uh, we, we believe that by the end of that time, We'll probably have an interim pastor. We've been, in, been meeting with several well-qualified individuals, and we're very encouraged by, by the talks that we've had so far. So, I have a challenge for you during this time. Transitional times can be difficult, and they can also be a tremendous blessing. I want to ask you a question. When was the last time that you made an important, significant decision in your life that you made a change, a positive change, and you were not in any kind of crisis? When everything is going just kind of the way it has for weeks and weeks and weeks before, we tend to settle in. We tend to settle in in our home life and in our jobs and in our marriages and with our kids and in our church. And we tend to just do the same things in the same way that we've done them before. And whenever there is something going on that shakes things up a little, those are times of opportunity. 
that's when things really go on. That, that's when really things change for the better. And we are in one of those times. This is not a time for us to settle for the status quo. This is a time for us to really get going. And I trust that we're going to do that. Paul talks about, in Scripture, the church as the body of Christ. And he talks about us being, being members. And he talks about a foot and an eye and, and other things. Well, I have a challenge for you this morning. If you are a hand, we need you right now. If you're a foot, we need you. If you're an eye or an ear, we need you. And if you're an elbow or a knee or something else less glorious, we need you too. And we can't function the way God intended us to without you. So speaking on behalf of, of the elders of the church, we accept the challenge of continuing every ministry as it has been before David's departure. We accept the challenge of presenting the gospel message every week with clarity and with passion. But we need you. There are going to be a few challenges. We are going to face a challenge in leadership. We need every leader, former, formal, and informal, to step up. Are you a leader? Do you have influence over at least one person in your life? If you are able to influence one person in your life, you're a leader. And we need you. We need your faithfulness. We need every member of this church to absolutely commit to attendance, to participation, and to service. We need you to dedicate yourself to devotion to God in a way that you've not ever done. We need every part of this church family to ask God what their role should be and to make a commitment to personal growth. Have you ever watched a child? If you've, I don't know if you do this at your house. Some folks have a, a certain door or a certain wall where you, you stand people up against the wall and you make a little mark that on this date, this is how tall they were. And when you're a child and you stand against that wall, or maybe when you go to grandma and grandpa's house and they make you stand back to back with someone, and the child stands there and he's trying to be tall, and he's trying so hard your whole body's just, just quivering, and you have to watch their little heels to make sure that they're not cheating. Folks, that's the attitude we need to have towards growth. When you want to grow that much, you'll grow. You will grow. I challenge you this morning towards a new level of family unity. 
We need every part of this church family to support at every opportunity every other part of our church family. Look for ways to do that. One of the ways that we're doing that right now, and I want to highlight that, is life groups. If you're not already in a life group, talk to a deacon, talk to an elder, talk to someone, and we'll get you connected. And then I challenge you from an organizational standpoint, I'm just going to say it. We need your financial gifts. And we need your service. We need you to volunteer. And we need your support. We need all of these things. And if we can count on that from you, if we can count on you being a member of the family, this is not like going to a theater and buying a ticket and then just setting to watch. If you're a member of the family, then we'll do fine. Have you ever had a bunch of people all get together in your house and there's a meal and there's dishes and stacked up and there's a mess and all that. When it's all over, you know how you tell who is a member of that household, who's a member of the family? The family gets to work. The guests have a tendency to drift into the other room and sit and see if there's a game on. But the family has a job to do. <coughs> We're family here, right? We all have work to do. Okay, enough of all that. We needed to get that out of the way. Today is an important day. It's a significant day. Today is Deacon Ordination Sunday. Today we're going to recognize the ordination of two men who have said yes to God and joined our deacon ranks. Matthew Alford and Frank Oldweiler. A little later in the service, I'm going to ask them to join me on the platform along with their wives, and we're going to have a brief ordination ceremony. We're going to present them with a certificate. We're going to pray for them. We're going to present a charge to these new deacons, and we're going to present a charge to you as well. <coughs> First, though, we're going to talk about the characteristics, the qualifications. How do we choose a deacon? How do we get where we are today? And pardon me, I'm going to scratch your throat here. We begin in the book of Acts, chapter 6. So let's go there. You can go to the book of Acts, and then you can stick your finger or a bookmark there, and you can go to 1 Timothy, chapter 3. That's where we'll be next. Acts chapter 6 verse 3 tells us the why there are deacons. Now in those days, 
when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, that would be the Greeks, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Then we move over to 1 Timothy. This is going to tell us the who or what the qualifications are that we're going to be looking at here. In the first seven verses of, of that chapter, we read about the qualifications of a bishop or an overseer. And then beginning in verse 8, we begin to talk about deacons. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith. Your translation may say the deep truths of the faith rather than mystery, with pure conscience. But let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Jesus Christ. The term deacon is a term which in our English transliteration comes from diakonos. This Greek word is found 29 times in the New Testament and is generally translated either minister or servant or deacon. And that's exactly the role of a deacon here at First Baptist Church. Deacons minister to those who are in need and they act as servant leaders. So how were Matthew and Frank chosen? We know these guys. We didn't just meet them. We know their character. And we know their hearts. We also looked at scripture to see if they met the qualifications that are laid out there. So we're going to spend the next few minutes walking through those things. If you're taking notes this morning, you might just write at the top of the page 10 requirements of deacons. And we'll be pulling those right out of 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 8. But if you want to follow along, we're just going to go 1 through 10. You'll be able to tell where we are. <clears throat> the first requirement for selecting a deacon is that the deacon should be reverent. That's not a word we toss around as much as maybe they did a hundred years ago. 
but it speaks of a life that is marked by personal dignity, a seriousness of purpose and self-respect in conduct. Now, to be reverent doesn't mean that these guys and the other deacons who are already serving are expected to walk around looking like they've been lemon and never smile or have any fun. That's not what it means. But it means that they take themselves seriously. And they take their jobs seriously. They have a personal dignity about them. They revere God. And they take his word seriously. The reverent person carries himself in such a way that they can earn the respect of other people. We believe that Frank and Matthew meet this criteria. The second requirement is that they not be double-tongued. To be double-tongued is to talk out both sides of your mouth. You tell one person one thing and you tell the next person something completely different. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. It's bad enough and it's always harmful when any Christian doesn't speak straight. But it can be disastrous when the servant leaders, when the deacons or the elders are caught being deceptive. And not only is it important that we not deceive with words, it's also important that our lives not say one thing when we're inside these walls and say something else to a different group of people. That can lead to dissension, to accusations, and worse. Proverbs 6.19 says, The Lord hates a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. The deacon who spreads innuendo or who repeats gossip and lies through an insincere tongue can do major damage to the church. And of course that's true for all of us, but it's particularly true for our servant leaders. Number three, third qualification. The deacon is not to be given to too much wine, depending on what translation you have. Your translation may say is not to be intemperate. The man called to be a deacon must be self-controlled. And this is connected to the reverence that we saw earlier. He is a model not only for those who are inside the church, but those outside. Romans chapter 14 verse 21 says this, It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. This goes for all believers, but the deacons are called specifically to mind how they think and act toward wine, or, I believe, toward anything else that grabs hold of the mind and focuses attention away from God and causes a man to act intemperately. To be given 
toward wine just means that that wine has a hold of your mind and it captures your attention and it becomes a focus for your life. Well, you can be a teetotaler and you can never touch wine and there can be other things in your life that cause you to act intemperately, that, be, that capture your attention and your focus and move it away from where it ought to be and may move it away from God. Paul says uh, in, in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, till I come give attention to reading or exhortation or to doctrine. The phrase where he says give attention is the same word in the Greek as the one that he used earlier when we're referring to wine. Don't let wine capture your attention. We want these men to lead temperate lives and to put the focus where the focus ought to be on God on their family and on their task as servant leaders the fourth qualification concerns a deacon's attitude toward money we talked to these two guys and they both said no problem there I'm just kidding, although they're nodding their head or smiling. Paul writes that the deacons should not be greedy for money. It should never be the case that a deacon has such a love for money that it negatively attacks, that it negatively impacts their integrity. Doesn't mean they take a vow of poverty, but it means when important decisions have to be made, and any time we're at a crossroad and we need to go straight or right or left, that decision is not made on the basis of what will benefit me financially. And this isn't just in the church, it's in all aspects of life. Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. It is an impossibility to be an effective deacon called to a high level of spiritual service and also have divided loyalties because of materialism. The fifth requirement is a real, genuine faith. Verse 9 of our text states that the life of a deacon is characterized by holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Paul uses the word mystery often in his epistles. But the mystery he speaks of is not like uh, some cult or some secret society where only a few people know the true beliefs and the secret handshake and the passwords. For Paul, when he talks about the mystery, the mystery is the revealed revelation of Jesus Christ in the form of the gospel. The deacon is to hold this mystery of the faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ, with a pure conscience. 
Now, if you say the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, that's no mystery. If that thought went through your head, then you need to thank God Almighty. Um, there have been uh, a couple of funerals here in this last week, and we met lots of people who were eager to express their condolences, and some of them uh, were very comforting, and some of them said the most tragic things. Some of them, in their effort to provide comfort, talked about loved ones who have gone on becoming angels and about everyone being in heaven and said the most ridiculous things completely contrary to scripture and to those people the gospel of Jesus Christ is indeed a mystery. The deacons here hold that mystery with a pure conscience. That means, first of all, that they are a believer in Jesus Christ. Secondly, it means that their theology and their actions line up. They can't be living a lie, spouting scripture on one hand and living like the devil on the other. Their walk and their talk have to agree with one another. Incidentally, that's pretty good advice for all of us, isn't it? The sixth requirement is that the deacon must be tested. This doesn't mean that Matthew and Frank have to study for some examination that, that they're going to have to endure. In actuality, the testing they've experienced and will continue to experience is harder than that because it takes place every single day of their lives. The word that we translate as tested means proved or scrutinized. It's the same word Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 when he says, test all things and hold fast to that which is good. Every day is a test. Every day is an examination in that respect. So the reality is, that these gentlemen have been in the process of testing for some time. And were that not the case, they would not meet the criteria for serving as a deacon. They had to meet the criteria before they were recommended, and they were re recommended to the church. There was a period of time allowed for everybody to consider their nomination, to pray about it, and then finally to endorse them by making a mark on a piece of paper. In Acts chapter 6, we saw that deacons were to be men of good reputation and full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and that means that people had to already know about these men. And so these are men that we know. The seventh requirement is a blameless life. Now, this is not talking about sinless perfection. If it was, we wouldn't be able to find anybody, of course. None of us can claim that, claim that. But blamelessness refers to living a life that is not burdened by accusations of impropriety. It means they're not constantly 
having to defend themselves against rumors about their conduct. The life of a deacon needs to be marked by a freedom from charges both within the church and within the community as a whole. Then verse 11 extends the requirements to the deacon's wife. So uh, Jennifer and Lori are not getting left out of the picture here. The deacon's wife is first called to be reverent just as her husband is. Secondly, she is not to be a slanderer. She should be thoughtful about every word she speaks, especially since she may from time to time be privy to information that is not available to everyone as her husband deals with sometimes delicate situations. She's called on to be temperate, to be moderate, and to be able to control herself. And she is to be faithful in all things, trustworthy and reliable. These qualifications are in contrast to some of the young widows that Timothy addressed in his church. Paul wrote about it later when he said, besides these, these women, these young ladies, have learned to be idle wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. <clears throat> the deacon's wife is above all his helpmate, joined to him in marriage. She can be very effective ministering with him, especially to women, obviously. And her good conduct is a testimony to his spiritual leadership. The effectiveness of this husband-wife team is the ninth commandment. I didn't say number eight before. That was a test just to see if you were taking notes along. The effectiveness of this team is a ninth requirement for the deacon. That is that he is the husband of one wife. To use country music lingo, he's a one-woman man. Understanding his calling toward his wife. Obviously, he can't be unfaithful, but in reality, the standard is higher than that. It calls for total devotion, absolute faithfulness, and moral integrity toward his wife. His greatest calling, other than obedience toward God himself, is to make his wife an absolute priority. God requires deacons to love their wives. And he wants deacons whose marriages, both publicly and privately, are a model for the church. Then finally, number 10, the last requirement is consistency in the home. The qualified deacon who still has children in the home, will bring them up to honor God. We see this modeled in the home of Philip, one of the original seven. 
Acts 21 mentions that his daughters were pure and that they proclaimed the word of God. So it's not just male children. Deacons will be entrusted with many responsibilities within the church and must be counted on to perform well. A man whose home is not in order is going to be preoccupied and going to have difficulty devoting themselves to the things outside the home. Well, that's 1 through 10. And then Paul offers two promises in verse 13 to those who serve well as deacons. First, he says they will obtain a good standing. This is how they'll be viewed by members of the church. I don't know if you could name the deacons that are in our church, but don't take good deacons for granted, folks, because they're not that easy to find. When a man is faithful as a deacon, he should be honored by the church body. The faithful deacon will also obtain great boldness in faith. That's a promise in Scripture. This means they'll experience a deepening of their faith and a stronger relationship in Christ as they submit to his leadership. You can see this in the lives of Philip, who we've mentioned, and also with Stephen. Philip became a bold evangelist and was the first to proclaim the gospel to the Samaritans as well as to a Gentile in the person of the Ethiopian eunuch. Stephen, of course, was the first Christian martyr. And the sermon he preached at his stoning was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. So, gentlemen, as you serve Christ well in the office of deacon, we look forward to seeing the boldness of your faith. Now, now I told these guys what we were going to do, so I'm not just throwing this at them unexpectedly. But I'd like you guys, Matthew and Frank, if you and your wives would join me up here on the platform. We're going to have a charge to the deacons and then a charge to you. You guys can just, just stand here. Hold hands with your wives for comfort if you need to. They set me up for that. I, I couldn't not. I'm going to ask you seven questions. The answer to each of these questions, if you sincerely agree, is I will. Frank and Matthew... Will you each promise that you will live your life in accordance with the biblical standards I have spoken of today? Will you strive to manage your home and lead your family as the spiritual head God has called you to be? Will you be ready to minister to the physical and spiritual needs of this church body.
Will you present yourself as necessary to comfort and counsel those who are in need? Will you seek to, main, to maintain harmony in the church body? Insofar as you are able with integrity before God Almighty, will you faithfully support this church's leaders and assist them when you are called on to do so? Will you strive to be an example, both in personal integrity and in Christian witness to this congregation? And now, church, to you. Will you pray for these men and their families, asking God to protect them and to care for them, both physically and spiritually? Will you submit to their leadership, knowing that as they are called, they are our servant leaders. Will you observe their lives as those who would guard them from stumbling and help them do well? Will you encourage them and their families, knowing that the ministry to which they are called may bring trying times? and may require that they deal with tough situations. 